What if a former U.S. congressman started to tell you a secret about a presidential assassination, but died before revealing the whole story? It's a turn-of-the-century whodunit, next. lovers and welcome. I'm your host Dean Carianis and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. Now number one in podcasting thanks to loyal listeners just like you. I am really grateful that iHeartRadio is still up and running and not only up and running but people are turning to their radio stations more than ever. People are downloading more podcasts for entertainment like today's story with David O. Stewart. His book is The Lincoln Deception, a Fraser and Cook historical mystery. And I hope that if you're not as fortunate, not able to go back to work right away, wherever you are in the world, that stories like David O. Stewart's will give you a little bit of enjoyment, something that's not only a distraction from all the trouble in the world and the headlines about coronavirus, but something that is fun and interesting and that takes one of history's great tragedies and turns it into an entertaining what if. The audio you heard there at the top was a gentleman named William F. Hooley. He was reading the Gettysburg Address as captured on an Edison cylinder in the year 1898. In this episode, our time machine travels back to the deathbed of Congressman John Bingham, who was a real man, although this is a fictional story. He prosecuted the conspirators who plotted the assassination of President Lincoln. The 16th president had already belonged to the ages for 35 years by the time Bingham makes the deathbed confession. That's the fictional kickoff point for today's novel. It's a secret that could tear the nation apart just as it's reuniting over victory in the war with Spain. His Holmes and Watson team features the white Dr. Jamie Fraser and African-American former baseball player Speedwell Cook. We've spoken to David O. Stewart before. We talked about his nonfiction books. Those are American Emperor Aaron Burr, the man who shot Alexander Hamilton. And before that, we talked about Madison's Gift, five partnerships that built America. You can find those conversations in our archives. And if you're interested in the Civil War period, you can also pick up David O. Stewart's timely book. It's called Impeached, the trial of President Andrew Johnson, and the fight for Lincoln's legacy. Visit davidostewart.com for more, and you can find this prolific author's many other titles. Those include The Summer of 1787, The Men Who Invented the Constitution. He's also an accomplished attorney and really a Renaissance man. I like the fact that he decided, hey, I'm going to write some fiction. I'm going to write a mystery here. And then he appeared in a documentary. It's called Going to the Devil. The Impeachment of 1868. It's part of the Great Courses program at Hunter College. And I was privileged to go and see a premiere there before the world all went into lockdown. And it was really enjoyable, really well done. They employed some animation and illustrations for some of the major men that were involved in the impeachment of Johnson. You definitely want to check that out if you have a chance. People are watching a lot more documentaries right now too. And I think that's a good thing, especially when they're as quality productions as Going to the Devil. Well, now that we've set our stage for a mystery built around the most infamous assassination in American history, let's join David O. Stewart and dig into The Lincoln Deception. I'm joined on the line by David O. Stewart, author of The Lincoln Deception, a Fraser and Cook historical mystery. Thank you so much for making the time to chat with me on the History Author Show. 
My great pleasure to talk to you. We usually catch up to chat about your nonfiction work, which I enjoy very much, and I can see where, even written between the lines of books such as Madison's Gift, that you could have a verb for fiction, because history is telling stories. That's part of history, right? Story is half the word. So that's what you do here. You are researching, and in your author's note for The Lincoln Deception, you write that something in a biography of Congressman John Bingham sparks your imagination. So let's go back to the start of your book. Describe that moment of inspiration. Well, I was researching my book on the Andrew Johnson impeachment trial, the presidential impeachment trial, and was at the Library of Congress waiting for a biography of John Bingham. As you said, Bingham was a congressman from Ohio and also one of the leading impeachment advocates and an important guy. He actually wrote the key phrases in the 14th Amendment, and he'd also prosecuted the co-conspirators with John Wilkes Booth from the Lincoln assassination. So I ordered this one biography of him. There was only one at the time, a fairly obscure work, and it came to me as classic Library of Congress form, coated with dust. Obviously, nobody had looked at it since they received it 20 years before. I read through it and, you know, there was some useful stuff in it, but there was this one paragraph that just grabbed me by the lapels and shook me and said, in which he relates a story which had come down in the hometown of Bingham, which was Caddis, Ohio, with the family of his doctor. And it was a story about what Bingham learned while he was prosecuting the Booth co-conspirators. And that was such an electrifying story that it occupied my mind about what might really be behind the Lincoln conspiracy or the Booth conspiracy. And that was not the project I was working on. So I had to finish that book. And I actually wrote another one after that. But this kept eating at my head. And I tried to research it and tried to, you know, I got all this stuff about the Booth conspiracy and tried to figure out could I solve this puzzle that the story set out? And I couldn't. So I decided I would have to make it up. And so I decided to write a novel, historical fiction, uh, about what really might have been behind the Booth conspiracy. And it struck me that you're fortunate to have an actual conspiracy to work with here. People hear the word today, and I guess ever since the Kennedy assassination, when people were trying to wrap their minds around this, that they couldn't possibly believe that it was a lone gunman. And so then we got this phrase conspiracy theory. And now I think when people talk about there could be a conspiracy, there's an automatic revulsion for it. There's an automatic pulling back and you think, well, this is tinfoil hat stuff. And for Booth, he does have a conspiracy. And in fact, there was a show, I can't remember what it was, it was a sitcom, but Ed Begley Jr. plays this fellow and he has Dallas, the layout of Dealey Plaza in his basement, and he's saying, you know, a lot of people say Booth may not have acted alone because they're looking back at all at all these old photos of a relative of somebody on the show. Chris O'Dowd is the star. And he is saying, well, all this stuff about Booth, maybe your ancestor fought on both sides. Some people did. And I'm sitting there saying... Well, he didn't act alone, at least in the sense that he did have conspirators. He did try to do more than just assassinate the president. So it's not as if you're starting off with a germ here of the crazy man, Charles Gateau, who shot President James Garfield in 1881. You have a real conspiracy here. You have a real group of people conspiring to assassinate Abraham Lincoln, to decapitate the government by killing other people in the government. So lay out that plot for us where the real history ends, at least what you could find in your research, and then where your jumping off point is. Well, there are several elements of this. And, and what Bingham had said to his doctor by the family story in this family, the doctor's descendants, was he had learned this terrible secret about the conspiracy, which he was never going to tell anyone. <laughs> and the reason you would think there might have been a terrible secret in You've already alluded to some of it, but, you know, there were up to a dozen people involved in this conspiracy with Booth, and they coordinated their actions on the fatal day, April 14th, uh, 1865, 
And they had multiple targets. They were not just trying to kill President Lincoln. That's the only part that succeeded. But they intended to kill Vice President Andrew Johnson. They intended to kill Secretary of State William Henry Seward. I also believe they intended to kill Edwin Stanton, the Secretary of War, and General Ulysses Grant. And that really, at some level, would have decapitated the Union government at that moment in time. And it's quite electrifying when you think, had they succeeded, what might have happened? And there are other factors. For about 10 months before this, they are engaged in planning. What's striking is that neither Booth nor most of his co-conspirators had any visible means of support during this time. In addition, Booth had multiple contacts with Confederate agents through the last couple of years of the war. And then something I'm struck, I've always been struck by, is the period after the assassination. He is in flight for 10 or 11 days after the assassination. There are literally tens of thousands of soldiers looking for him all around Washington, D.C., in Northern Virginia, in Maryland, and he is able to find Confederate agents and sympathizers throughout Southern Maryland and then across into Virginia in order to elude them. Now, that requires planning. He gets a password too, doesn't he? Absolutely. And, you know, the hardest part of any assassination is not killing the person, it's getting away. (laughs) That's really hard. And he got awfully darn close to doing it. So I think, you know, if he hadn't broken his leg, he might have made it. So that, again, suggests to me that this that we, we know it wasn't a mad gunman. We know this was the product of planning. And you can't help but wonder, so what was behind it? And that night at Ford's Theater, one of the things when you mentioned Ulysses S. Grant that I thought of was he was supposed to be or at least was invited that night and his wife Julia said no I don't want to spend a night with Mary Lincoln I'm not going tell him I have a headache and unfortunately Grant is just not there at this key moment but if he had been talk about good speculative fiction which is what you offer us here in the Lincoln deception had he been killed and not Johnson if he's eliminated as well then that counterbalance that we have to Johnson throughout Reconstruction that you cover in Impeached, the trial of President Andrew Johnson and the fight for Lincoln's legacy, there's nobody who can counter him like Grant was able to counter him during that period of Reconstruction. Johnson's basically ready to restart the Civil War, right? He's saying, keeps saying to Grant, well, when can I hang these guys? You know, when can I, when can I hang Robert E. Lee? When can I hang Jefferson Davis? And Grant's telling him, no, I gave them my word. They surrendered. This is what's going to happen. He has the weight, or as we say today, gravitas. He can hold Johnson back. He can move troops around. He can prevent him from giving in to the dark impulses that Johnson had in abundance. So it's not as if it was really a crazy thing. We hear many of these conspiracies like Smedley Butler. They Well, did people, were people trying to get him and install him as a fascist dictator in World War II? Well, a lot of pieces had to fall into place for that to have happened. It's sometimes just the crazy ranting of people in a bar. Hey, if we did this, then maybe this, and maybe this, and then all this could happen. These guys really planned this. And so I can see that gnawing away at you. And then you take this step, you design this team, and you decide, I'm gonna, I'm gonna let my imagination take me away. So I wondered if that was hard for you, because as a historian, you talked about the discipline you had there to say, well, I have to finish the book I'm working on right now. I can't afford to stop in the middle and start writing another book, much less a novel. So how did you get out of that headspace and say, hey, I'm going to let my imagination run wild? It was just frustration that I was not able to do a nonfiction book out of it. But also, I came to the writing trade. I was a lawyer for many years, and I actually started out trying to write fiction. And that didn't really take off in a massive way. So I was then moved into writing history. So I always had that itch that I wanted to scratch to write fiction. So it wasn't that big a a shift to do this as a fictional treatment. And I knew enough about the episodes and the characters who were involved to put that together And it turned out to be just a tremendous lark. I do enjoy the opportunity to write dialogue. That's something you never get to do when you're writing straight history. 
you know, occasionally you have a transcript, but I mean, you can't fix up anything in the transcript. <laughs> right. You just got to go with it. People can't be smart Alex unless they really were in real time. So you get a chance to engage in a little play and cast lights on parts of these individuals' characters that you understand as a researcher, but it's just liberating to be able to show them. And to be honest, making up a fictional character is is a lot of fun. <laughs> Well, one novelist said it's it's daydreaming for a living. Yeah, you get to play God a little bit. Let me make this guy. Let me put them together. Let me design him and move him around. If you've seen the movie Stranger Than Fiction with Will Ferrell, I just thought that was a really clever device. And it's a funny, almost a farce of a movie. But he realizes he's the character in somebody else's novel. Emma Thompson is this novelist. And right. all the things that he goes through right. in that. And he and he goes to Dustin Hoffman and says, well, I'm hearing this voice in my head talk in the third person omniscient. <laughs> Dustin Hoffman identifies it as. And that's the role that you get to play here. And it brings me nicely into my next question, which is about how you go about designing these two characters. You have a physician, Dr. Jamie Frazier, and he teams up with Speedwell Cook, who's an African-American ball player. They take us through the Lincoln deception. There's naturally, I'm sure, going to be some conflict there that you want to bake in, but you want to be true to the facts of contemporary relationships. So how do you go about capturing that realism and avoid stereotyping Cook in the era of minstrel shows, but also not make people unsympathetic to your doctor, who probably shared a lot of the views of his time if he was a real person? It was one of the challenges, and I said it for myself. I wanted to create an interracial, biracial team. And, you know, I, I knew that I, I had the doctor as a character. He's the guy who hears the confession by Bingham on his deathbed. So what else can I do with him? But I wanted a teammate with him, partner, largely because they could talk to each other and it doesn't all have to be in their head. They, and you can bring people with different talents and different insights to the problem. And so I had to sort of scrounge around, and since I'm a history person, I looked, you know, who was in eastern Ohio at that time who was interesting and stumbled upon a real guy, this fellow Moses Fleetwood Walker, who was the last black man to play professional baseball in what was then the major leagues, who was driven out by the white players. In fact, there had been a number of African-American ballplayers who were all driven out, and Fleet was just the last guy to hang on. And he was an educated man. He had been to University of Michigan and Oberlin College, and he was angry. And he spent his life, frankly, after that uh, as what was called at the time a race man. He was very assertive about the rights of black people. It's a terrible time. You know, the lynchings are happening everywhere. Jim Crow legislation. This is in the early 1900s. And he just raged about it. He wrote a remarkable screed, which is in the Library of Congress. I was able to find it. So I thought, wow, what a great figure. And for him, the Lincoln assassination would have great impact. And that was an opportunity, I thought, also, as you say, to try to explore the relations between the two. My doctor, I made a small town guy with a good heart who was pretty clueless about race issues, uh, was not a particularly integrated community or didn't have a great African-American number of people there. And they have to clash. I mean, they can't not. And they have trouble getting along with each other. It seemed to me that it would be wrong to make it that they become best buddies. They develop some trust with each other. They have to rely on each other. They share this quest that they're on. And the doctor, Jamie Fraser, gets a bit educated about race issues. But they're from very different worlds, and they're not going to be best friends forever. They are just thrown together. And that was the challenge, but also was the interest that you create that tension. I mean, tension in, in relationships is 
It's interesting to write about. I hope it's interesting to read about. Really helpful for you to tell this story, to have them have, well, not helpful. You designed it this way, but the conflict is always the key. And also for you, since you want to bring Jamie Fraser and Speedwell Cook back for other mysteries, you keep their characters broad. This is a relationship that when you look at them, you say, just as it is in the nation, right? Hey, some people think, well, you freed the slaves at the time. You have emancipation. We passed a few quick amendments there. As you said at Hunter College, that the amendments tend to come in bunches. So you're free now. Okay, go ahead, vote, at least the men, and we're done. Everything's finished. You're equal now. And that's not the case. It drags on. It drags on to the current day in some things. And so that really sets you up well for future novels, I would think, as far as their characters. You can wake up in the middle of the night and have a moment and say, hey, what if that happened? Or when you're doing your nonfiction work, you can daydream for a few minutes and say, hmm, I wonder how they would confront something like the Treaty of Versailles. How would they confront World War One, Or how would they confront Woodrow Wilson rolling back so many of the rights, getting rid of people in the federal government? You set yourself up nicely there. And since I know how you plan and I've read your books, I'd like to think that was by design you were you were hoping you'd be able to continue well i hate to disappoint you <laughs> oh, but <no. laughs> you're smarter than i was I, I was writing this one story and when we finally had a publisher interested in publishing it the first thing their question was is this a series which had never occurred to me and my agent told me that was their question and i thought about it for a second and he quickly said you know there's only one answer to that question yeah so i said sure it's a series and <laughs> had i thought about it i would have made them probably 10 years younger <laughs> so yeah, they would have had more time but i was lucky that they were characters with a poten potential for growth this is a process for jamie fraser of learning and you know speed cook really based on fleet walker is just for me, an endlessly fascinating guy. He's a guy in an impossible situation living in a terrible place. <laughs> and he has all the talents you would want in a human being, except the whole country is basically designed not to let him succeed. And that drove him crazy. And why wouldn't it? And so that was always going to be a fascinating problem to keep coming back to. Well, you know, Nero Wolf and Archie Goodwin never aged in the Rex Stout novels, so there's no reason that they can't keep having adventures long after their natural fictional lifespan. So I'm saying that hopefully because for me, people who are listening, if you've ever tried to pitch a book to somebody and you said, oh, I, I read Lord of the Rings or I read the C.S. Lewis books and I have a great idea for a series, a good agent will tell you, well, sell one book Never go in there and try to say you're you're going to try to sell a series because publishers aren't interested in series right off the bat. They want to see how that first book goes. And here, when you're saying they asked you that question, oh, hey, is this a series? Can this be a series? In my head, I was thinking of Ghostbusters when they go up on the top of the building and he says, are, are you a god? And he says, no. And he says, Ray, if someone asks you if you're a god, you say yes. <laughs> and that's what this made me think. If someone asks you from that first draft it's not even a first book if you want to make this a series you say yes that is the only answer and that's an indication of how compelling your two characters are in the lincoln deception because you want to get more from them you sometimes you get to the end of a book and you say okay that was a good standalone story but sometimes you just want to hear more and more and that's what we get here out of your characters well thanks I, i've been very gratified I like to ask novelists to read an excerpt from their book. This is a good time to do that. They can get a taste not just for your writing that captured publishers, but also for what you think is important, what you enjoyed writing, I'm sure, and what you think will hook readers. So set this up for us and have at it. Well, the book starts with this wonderful moment when John Bingham in the year 1900, it's 35 years after the assassination, is dying. And his young doctor is Jamie Fraser. And Jamie comes to look in on him. This is back in the days when there were house calls. And let me just read a brief passage from that. Bingham starts out saying, I've been recalling Mrs. Surratt. A perfect she-lion she was. His blue eyes glinted briefly, then faded to a vague watery look. 
We were waiting for the convictions to be approved by the president, he went on, and she called me to her prison cell, and we had the most remarkable exchange. The old man shook his head. What she told me, you must understand, I was no babe in arms. I, I was in Congress during vicious times before the war. As Judge Advocate General, I knew the horrors of the bloodiest war man has fought, of the horrors of which the human spirit is capable. And yet, that woman unsettled my very soul. A afterward, I went to Stanton. Fraser knew about Edwin Stanton from nearby Steubenville, who had been Lincoln's Secretary of War. I never saw that great good man so vexed as when I related Mrs. Surratt's confession. Bingham's eyes drifted again to the far wall. The memory seemed to seize his entire attention. Finally, we agreed, Stanton and I. Bingham added, her confession was too terrible. To reveal it would be to risk the survival of the Republic. Fraser wasn't sure he had heard correctly. Sir, the survival of the Republic? What could Bingham mean? What secret part of the assassination plot, what beyond the murder of the martyr president had held the power to destroy the nation? He said to Bingham, perhaps now, after so many years, it would be well to get that confession out, what she said. Why, after all, did Mrs. Surratt confess, if not to have it known? Ah, Benham said, leaning back, you're exactly right, Jamie. She wanted it known. She meant to continue her evil mischief against our poor nation, even after her death. That was why Stanton and I agreed never to reveal it. I gave my word. Stanton took the secret to the grave. So shall I. And so we did. And that left Fraser and me to figure out, with Speed Cook's help, what the secret was. I love to read old newspapers, and you get a story and you say, okay, they found a body somewhere. There was one recently that I read. They found it by the Palisades Amusement Park, where people would go from the city, come over to New Jersey, enjoy all kinds of amusements. And they found a body, and I'm thinking as the future person, well, okay, I'm going to be able to read your mail and find out, did the husband do it? And no, I find an article the after the murder, the murder's in about 1920, and I find one in, the last mention of her is in about 1945, and they say she's in a list of unsolved murders in Bergen County, New Jersey. And so I say they never did find it out, and it was a fascinating little story, and those things gnaw at you, and that's why fiction, I think, helps us all who have those moments and especially a mystery here. I mentioned Nero Wolf and the Lincoln deception is proudly listed would be able to hold its own up against those mysteries where you're able to solve it and dig through it. And I think it's very cathartic for us, even though it's not usually what you look for when you read fiction. No, thank you. I kicked off my introduction with an 1898 Edison recording from William F. Hooley. That year was key to me in looking at the Lincoln deception because we have the Spanish-American War. That plays a huge role in uniting the formerly disunited states. John Bingham's fellow Ohio Republican, William McKinley, he tries such healing gestures as he puts a Confederate, former Confederate, General Fighting Joe Wheeler, in charge of the U.S. troops in Cuba. So by 1900, those are recently healed wounds. And you have, for instance, a woman and she's there with her son as the troops march through Florida. Tampa is the point that the troops leave from, the Rough Riders and many others. So are these Yankees or are these rebel troops? And says to the child, they're Americans. And so here we have this and now the, if you've ever, if you ever put in some spackle, right? The seam is just drying again, you know, from where you've had this rupture. And what a great time to place the Lincoln deception. Why choose that time, though? Why not do it right after the Civil War, especially since you know so much about Andrew Johnson? You could have had him in there. Well, two reasons. One was, I respect the history, and this is the only time Bingham mentioned this secret. So I wanted to set it in 1900, because that's when somebody learned about it, other than him and Stanton. But I was also inspired by a classic mystery story, historical mystery, by Josephine Tay, called Daughter of Time, where she has a 20th century detective who gets laid up in the hospital and becomes intrigued by the supposed crimes of King Richard III in 
if you know the Shakespeare play, he's the hunchback who was murders his way to the throne uh, until he's finally overthrown himself. And she has her, her detective ultimately conclude that Richard probably didn't do it, didn't do any of it. And it's a fascinating experience because he, like us, comes to the crime when the trail is cold. And that's why I liked doing it in 1900, because by 1900, the trail is mostly cold. A lot of the people who are engaged are gone. And that's the way we are in the 21st century when we read about it. I mean, there's nobody left to ask about it. So you've got to reason it out. I mean, you've got to be the clever detective and try to take the evidence that we've got. And luckily, there were a few people still alive that I was able to put in the story who dated from 1865. But much of it really is just assembling the pieces, moving them around, trying to figure out what really did happen. You're enjoying my conversation with David O. Stewart, who you can find online at davidostewart.com. We are discussing his novel. It's called The Lincoln Deception, a Fraser and Cook historical mystery. The Washington Post wrote of the novel, quote, One of the most satisfying treats of The Lincoln Deception is the engaging way it reminds us that the actual story was much more complicated. Booth's attack on Lincoln was just one assassination attempt carried out that day. David, as a novelist, you get to dig into those items, those what-ifs. And since you also are a nonfiction author, and you literally wrote the book on Vice President Andrew Johnson, that's the book Impeached, he was also targeted that night, and in light of the Lincoln deception, I'm sure it crossed your mind, what might Reconstruction have looked like if not for the incompetence of Booth's fellow assassins? It's a wonderful question that, of course, we think about. And I've been talking to groups about the book. I love to pose the question. So suppose Johnson had also been killed. Who would be president? Who would have been president? And I, there actually was a man in uh, Texas who got it right. But I even very well-informed historical readers won't know this. It is truly obscure. The second in line for the presidency after the vice president in 1865 by statute was the president pro tem of the Senate, who was Lafayette Foster of Connecticut. He was a Republican senator at the time. He was a lawyer. He was not a fierce abolitionist by any means. In fact, he became a Democrat later in his political career. And he didn't leave much of a footprint for us to go by. I think he would not have been as confrontational as Andrew Johnson. It would be difficult to be as confrontational as Andrew Johnson. (laughs) Uh, He was a very difficult figure. But I think he would have been pretty sympathetic to the Southerners. There is some evidence that Foster, because there were a lot of cotton mills in Connecticut, was sensitive to sort of restarting the Southern economy. That has a certain echo today when we're trying to restart our economy after this terrible pandemic. So I find it almost impossible to project. Reconstruction was bound to be difficult. Civil wars are awful. And we fought one for four years and 700,000 plus people were killed. That just doesn't heal overnight. And it certainly didn't. And, you know, it would. people always want to know, so what if Lincoln had lived? Well, if Lincoln had lived, we probably wouldn't think he was such a great president as we do now because it was such a hard thing to do to try to placate Northerners who felt that they had sacrificed so much that they wanted to win and they wanted a real victory and real change in the South and still bring Southerners to not hate Northerners for the rest of their careers. And, you know, it's not like you you mentioned sort of spackling the two sections together. It's not like it's it. The job is finished even today. I mean, look at the Confederate monuments issue. There's a heritage which, you know, we still and it is all tied up with slavery and race, which are issues that are eternal for this country. And 
you know, we're still dealing with a lot of it. And worth mentioning for the sake of the Lincoln Deceptions plot and a way to buttress the idea you're jumping off point and putting it in 1900 is a lot of those Confederate monuments that people argue over today were put in during this Gilded Age period. So there was still that feeling and that still that rebellion. It wasn't as if it was the minute that the war was over, they started putting up statues. That wasn't the case. And for Lincoln, you think, well, everyone would have would have listened to him. Certainly not the case, and even his attempts at reconciliation, I was thinking as you spoke, because it's in the Lincoln Deception, about Booth being behind Lincoln, and he says to the band, play Dixie, I've always loved that old Southern tune, and, well, that's not when he's behind him, he's behind him as an inauguration, sorry, <laughs> but uh, he's there, he's in the crowd, and he hears him say that, and he says that's the last speech that he'll ever give. So even this effort that Lincoln makes at reconciliation manages to enrage the man who goes on to kill him. So that, I think, gives us a small idea of just how complicated and difficult the job ahead would have been had he not succumbed to an assassin. Indeed. I asked you how you balance fiction and nonfiction impulses to ensure that you treat historical figures fairly. William Martin, best-selling author of a dozen novels, including The Lincoln Letter, writes in your foreword that a good historian will always be true to the letter and spirit of real people. He says, quote, But a good historical novelist gives every one of them a reason for being, not just in history, but in his fictional universe as well. I wanted to ask how you go about balancing those fiction and nonfiction impulses, which you spoke a little bit about when we talked about dialogue, because dialogue is one of those things that they spoke differently back then, and there's varying levels of touch. You seem to have a light touch with how you did their dialogue and using things like jargon and terms at the time. So how do you balance that when you're writing dialogue to ensure that somebody doesn't say something that just feels wrong to you? Well, you've asked about some very interesting issues that you have to confront when doing historical fiction because you're writing for a modern ear. So if I really tried to replicate the way people spoke back then, it might strike people today as awkward, affected, just not genuine. So you have to respect your, your current readers. By the same token, I'm eager to avoid anachronisms. It's something that will set my teeth on edge when I'm reading a historical fiction. If you know they make some reference that somebody in 1865 or 1900 could not have known and would never have used the word. And frankly, when I'm writing dialogue, I keep the Oxford English Dictionary next to me. And I'm, if I use a word, or I do this when I'm editing too, I'll look it up in the OED and see when that word came into play because I don't want to use language that was not around. And I have a book of slang from that period. So, you know, if I want to have somebody be really slangy, I can see if maybe there's a term I can work in there that's not too weird and that people will understand. Sometimes you find a slang term that nobody will understand and you just can't use it. It is a tricky business. Bill Martin makes a great point. You have to respect the history. We know, I always say, you know, you can make up a lot, but Lincoln has to be tall. <laughs> but you also need to understand, too, that most of history, and this is a writer of history, we, we know it most of all, is silence. You know, even somebody like Abraham Lincoln, whose life has been chronicled in thousands and thousands of books, you know, you pick any day in Lincoln's life and, you know, we just know the barest superficial facts about what happened to him and what he did. And so you can fill in that silence and you need to do it credibly and you need to do it with respect for what we know of him. So, you know, I, I know it was popular for a while, but, you know, having him kill vampires is probably not <laughs> as respectful as I would be, but it is a fun challenge to to meet. He did beat up that werewolf that time, <laughs> but that was about the closest thing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I guess I, I missed that part. Oh, yeah. it's in that, That's one of those Library of Congress real deep uh, books that nobody ever looked up. Oh, but <laughs> when they reopen, I'll check it out. <laughs> Sorry, I'm enjoying my own joke way too much. No, that's okay. Went, but, uh, hey, Abbott and Costello met all those guys. So, 
that brings me nicely to a next question that I wanted to mention because I love hearing you talk about the mechanics and the the way that you struggle with words and doing things and putting the right word and treating these characters with respect. So were there any people that you would have liked to work into the Lincoln Deception or at least give them a cameo, but you just couldn't bring yourself to bend real events that far? Well, sure. I, I referred to the, you know, a few people were still alive from back then. There were two conspirators with Booth who were still alive, and I I was able to get them into the story, and that was great. But the key trial witness against Booth, a fellow named Louis Weichmann, was also still alive, and I had a lot of fun with him. And I wanted to get Booth's family involved, which I was able to do, but sadly, uh, he had a number of siblings. I guess there were six who made it into adulthood, or six of them, five siblings. But the only one who was still alive in 1900 was sadly not Edwin Booth, who was a brilliant actor and the real scion of the Booth acting legacy uh, and was a staunch union supporter and was mortified by his brother's actions. He would have been a great character and I would have loved to have him engaged. But the Booth that survived was Dr. Joseph Booth or the sibling who survived. And, you know, we know almost nothing about him. He seems to have, you know, tried to avoid the glare of the spotlight his whole life, which after your brother has killed the president, you could understand. Uh, <laughs> it's really not a, not a conversation starter in, in much of the country. One of the moments in his life that's real that I don't think any novelist, even a first time novelist, even the worst novelist that you could think of would have tried is that moment that he saves Robert Lincoln's life at the train station in Jersey City. And that would have been some nice fodder there for you, I'm sure, to chew over in dialogue. But a real moment that happens and after the assassination, Booth, who's been now blacklisted because of his name, because of what his brother has done, he writes Robert Lincoln and says, hey, you remember that time I saved your life? Because it would really help me out right now because, gosh, people are going to kill me next just by being associated with my brother. So he's a fascinating character in his own right, and I could see where that would have played on your mind. It would have been great to have him in there because he would have been motivated to try to help here right these wrongs of his brother. It very much. He, the story is that he refused to hear his brother's name spoken in his presence for the rest of his life. It reminds me of Benedict Arnold, too. To this day, Benedict Arnold's uh, name can't be put on any monument in the U.S. And up at Saratoga, there's just a leg because he you know, injured in his leg. And it just says to the bravest soldier in the Continental Army or something like that. His name, people went to the graveyard and they chiseled the names of his relatives who were also named Benedict Arnold off the headstone. So if you think things were nicer and politer back in the days of powdered wigs, I said, wow, those Continentals could really hold a grudge against the guy. Yeah. <laughs> you mentioned throughout this conversation how you think the conspirators could have succeeded about the things that they conspired to do. There was a movie in 2010, and I was gratified that you said you had seen it and could therefore comment on it. It's called The Conspirator, and it's directed by Robert Redford. And I know what I think of it, but I wanted to ask you first, what was your opinion of the film and how it treated the period of the assassination? Well, the best thing I can say about it which will sound like damning with faint praise because it probably is, is they did a wonderful job with the lighting because this is an era without electric lights. And a lot of historical uh, movies tend to use the bright lights anyway and portray it as though they had electricity. And in that movie, they really rely on sunlight and indirect lighting in the evenings. It's lit perfectly, I thought. The story, unfortunately, is just a tissue of lies. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it basically says Mary Surratt was innocent, which is not true. She was guilty, guilty, guilty. And portrays her as this poor woman who was sort of fingered out of uh, gender rage. And I will be honest, there was of national fascination with Mary Surratt. She was the only female conspirator. And it was a bit unfair in some ways. There's this wonderful image. I think the Harper's Weekly published of all drawings of the faces of each of the conspirators. And they put her in the center and all the others sort of as the solar system rotating around her, which was not true. 
she, you know, Booth was at the center. <laughs> it was yeah. not Mary Surratt. But she was in it up to her eyeballs. Um, she was part of it. And uh, there was nothing unjust about her verdict. It's a Hollywood movie. <laughs> That's all I can say. A lot of drama, I thought, from the real story they left out of that movie. And I was disappointed in it because I convinced my wife to watch it with me. And as someone who's not a historian and she's also Canadian, that that's the right word for it, convincing. Hey, do you want to watch this historical drama about a bunch of people that conspired to murder President Lincoln? And she was happy to watch it with me. And I found myself saying, well, wait, when she goes to the gallows, spoiler alert, this is much more dramatic. But now that you mention it, the lighting when she's in the cell, for instance, and the lawyer comes in or when they're in that courtroom and she's up there. It really is beautifully lit. I would have liked to have seen more Hollywood movie stuff and less TV movie of the week, just sort of having the camera sit there on her when she's testifying and not really giving us the, the full scope of effects that you're available to do to tell a story in movie making. I did like the fact that the actors all seem to be into it. They all seem to get the period. The costumes are also good, I guess, but I I feel like I would rather have spent that time reading your novel if I had known that the Lincoln deception was out there. Then I'd rather sit down and enjoy this fictional take on it than something that purports to be the actual history that's completely, not completely, the names are the same and such, and the end is the same, but claims to be actual history because it wasn't. And it wasn't even a dramatic story. I could see if they'd change things to be dramatic, take that dramatic license, but they made the real story less dramatic. Well, that is the great sin, of course, which is not merely to be inaccurate, but to be dull. <laughs> and, uh, I think they, they unfortunately committed that. We have time for one final question, and I'll close by asking about those upcoming books in the Fraser Cook Historical Mystery Series. Those are due out later in 2020, although I guess everything now is a little bit subject to change because of what's going on in the world. And I am certainly hopeful. So let me ask you about that. Give us a sneak peek of the future books and tell us what those novels have in store for our heroes. Well, they will be coming out. It's like 99% sure. I don't see anything that's going to get in the way. Uh, on June 28th, uh, we will release The Paris Deception which is set, you already previewed this at the Paris Peace Conference at the end of World War I. My heroes are in their 50s at this point, and they haven't been friends for the intervening time. They haven't seen each other. I saw no reason to think they would be. But they're thrown back together at this very dramatic moment in world history. And Dr. Fraser is dealing with the Spanish flu, echoes of today. Um, and in particular with President Woodrow Wilson, who's there as the great hero of the day, uh, who got quite sick during the conference. And there's great controversy about whether he had the, a light case of the flu, which was the story, the official story, or a heavy case of the flu, or whether he had a stroke. Um, so I have a chance to explore that. But I also had a chance through Speed Cook's son, who was a soldier with the Harlem Hellfighters, to explore the continuing tragedy of American racial relations and how we treated our soldiers then and fold into it a remarkable piece at the end of the peace conference, which people tend to not remember, which is when the treaty was finally done, it was negotiated without the other side. The Germans were never there. And it was presented to the German government, and the Germans refused to sign. And that was sort of a scary time. You know, where were we going to start this terrible war again? And then suddenly, overnight, the entire German government changed. It, uh, the people changed. And it's, in my view, never been terribly well explained. So that's a great mystery and deception I was able to explore there. And then the third book is The Babe Ruth Deception, which is scheduled to come out in October. I would love it if there was a World Series going on then, but we don't know. Hmm. Uh, and it brings them right back to New York just a, a year after the Paris Peace Conference. Speed is promoting a Negro League baseball team. That's when the Negro Leagues got started. And the Babe is having his first two years with the Yankees when he really revolutionized baseball. He became the biggest celebrity in the country. 
And he had this amazing connection to the gamblers who had rigged the 1919 World Series. This, again, is something people have not explored. But the man who was the bag man who paid off the Black Sox, Chicago White Sox players who were called the Black Sox, to fix and throw the 1919 World Series was the producer and the underwriter of a movie that Babe starred in in 1920 in New York. And, you know, if you can't throw together the nation's greatest celebrity with an underworld scandal and produce an interesting mystery, you really shouldn't be in the business. (laughs) So (laughs) Fraser gets engaged in it because his wife, and we've skipped this, but she comes out of a theater background, so she was involved with the movie. That was just a tremendous amount of fun for me, real busman's holiday to write about baseball and write about the babe. Well, David O. Stewart, thank you so much for joining me to discuss the Lincoln Deception and for giving us this preview of the continuing Fraser Cook historical mystery series, the adventures that these guys will be going on. I think right away you hooked me, so I would love it if, uh, as you said, a series was going on in the fall and we could talk about that. We talked about Arnold Rothstein with David Petrusha, his book Rothstein, and what a fascinating period, the jazz age, to kick it off and give us a mystery to boot in there. Also, the Paris Peace Talks, as you mentioned. If you can believe it, under Wilson here, 20 years later, they will have less advantages, African Americans, less equality under the Wilson administration. And here we have the flu. And hey, here we are dealing with a pandemic again. So that's another layer that you are fortunate to have baked into your novel. I wish you the best of luck with future books. I can guarantee readers will enjoy them, whether they land on the fiction or nonfiction book. If you see David O. Stewart on the cover, at least pick it up and flip through it or order it on Amazon and check it out. You won't be disappointed. Thanks so much, Dean. Again, the book is The Lincoln Deception, a Frazier and Cook historical mystery. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at the historyauthor.com page for this episode. By buying the book through us, you help keep the flux capacitor on our time machine humming like usual. My thanks to David O. Stewart for joining us and for digging into the infamous plot to decapitate the U.S. government 150 years ago. You can check out our previous interviews with Mr. Stewart in the archives at historyauthor.com or you can pick up his book, Impeached, about the trial of Andrew Johnson. And let me mention that documentary again from the great courses at Hunter College. It's called Going to the Devil, the Impeachment of 1868. Read more about our guest at davidostewart.com, and you can let us know what you think of the book and the interview on Twitter at History Dean, Instagram at The History Author Show, or facebook.com slash historyauthor. That's it for this installment of The History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for our next all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio. And if you're an iTunes subscriber, please take a minute to leave us a review. Well, until our next trip into the past together, thanks so much for time traveling with us today, and have a great week. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore.